Uh, and I think the the way the, the the scale of Twitter and Facebook, the ease with which you can use uh, financial capital to win social capital, uh, so to win people's minds, and how easy this is to be automated and, and done at scale, it's pretty uh, it's pretty scary. I, we I don't think anyone has ever been able to accomplish this this kind of uh, mass media control. and welcome to another episode of Posterity. My name is Cedric and with me as always is Z. And uh, why don't we kick things off right away and uh, Z, just give us a little bit of an overview of what we're chatting Mm. about today. Cool. So we're going to start off by talking about the lessons from our first episode. And there's a very good amount there. It gets pretty philosophical, but clear and short at the same time. Secondly, we go on to deep reading and deep listening. The idea that the medium is the message and maybe we ought to take a bit more time uh, and attention dedicated towards reading and listening like in the present as opposed to a much more quick form like on Twitter. And then finally we take a look at Trump being blocked on Twitter, the ideas of uh, freedom of speech, Julian Assange's extradition sprinkled in with a bit of Edward Snowden. So that's all in store for today. Please stick around. Mm. I mean, I, I just want to come to the to the first kind of item right away because this was a concept that, that was actually your idea. If I remember correctly, we, we did a little bit of this in our first episode, and that's this idea of kind of lessons from our last recording. Um, I love it. I think it's super fascinating to talk about it, but it was your idea, and I'm, I'm just curious what kind of prompted you to actually suggest that we do this in the first place. It's simply something that just interests me a lot. Um, uh, each time, like hearing yourself back, um, played back, it's such a such an odd experience since um, we have a memory of how we thought the episode went or how we thought like we how well we spoke. But then when you hear it again, like in its pure format, um, as if it were a podcast that you were listening to or a YouTube video that you were watching, you start realizing like how different reality is to your perceptions. And hence to to reflect on it. Um, it's not something you get up in the morning and say, ah, you know what, today I'll reflect on my shortcomings. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's, it's a super bizarre experience. Uh, and that's why I like it so much as in like this segment, because, you know, we have conversations on a daily basis and, and people like you and I, you know, we love having extended conversations <laughs> as well, you know, with, with good friends that last for hours. But it really is like that, you know, when you're in it, when you're in these conversations and expressing your thoughts and listening to to everybody else, you know, that's one world. But we now have the privilege through the fact that we record this and then call it a podcast that we can actually go back and, and listen to it. And it really, I don't know about you, but it always, it fascinates <laughs> me with the amount of just odd things you come up with and say and just, it's mm. it's really, and, and how you structure sentences and and the extent to which you actually pick up on what the other person mm. is saying. And uh, I mean, in many ways, I'm, I'm kind of already spoiling uh, some of our key <laughs> takeaways. But, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, you always you always listen to this uh, with mm. uh, with your girlfriend, right? And you kind of go on walks and, 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 and mm. you have a chat about it. And I'm curious, what was 
What was the first thing that just stood out to you from, from our first episode? Well, what are your key, what was, you know, some of the things that, that you thought about and that you would call a lesson? One of the first things is uh, Carl saying that um, <laughs> my points are pretty boring. Uh, so this, my girlfriend, uh, she, 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 she <laughs> <laughs> Wow, really? What a roast. What a roast. Yeah, she says your like, points not, were boring. It, it's because the points are, like, they take so long to come out. Um her major problem was with how much context I gave a lot of the points. Um, and she's known this about me uh, through, you know, like living with me and interacting with me on a daily basis. I often go about like discussions and especially debates, um, just giving like a, like so much context that upon me saying the punchline, i.e. the point, um, there is no room for, there's no more any, there, there's no room left for debate. Um, Strictly speaking, it's not true because <laughs> most of the time people simply just get lost and the point isn't made and people are just either left confused or intimidated. But in both cases, um, it doesn't stimulate further conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I, I'm not going to lie. I think that is absolutely hilarious. I mean, I, I, I agree to an extent and then I don't like it's it's I'm, I'm torn because on the one hand, the mm. context you give can be very interesting, but you know, one example comes to mind from last week where I think this was our second segment and I asked you some sort of a question. You gave yeah. context yeah. for two minutes. You didn't answer the question yeah. and then you said the segment was done. That was that was that, that was absolutely priceless. I am um, I yeah, that that's the only thing that stands out to me. But other than that, I, I do think that, you know, you, you, it, it's somewhat balanced. I mean, how did you feel about I it? Did, did you I did, I did. Um, and each time, uh, like uh, these days when I speak, even uh, right now as I'm speaking, I'm very, very conscious in my mind um, of uh, trying to deliver information, you know, <laughs> trying to actually communicate rather than, you know, practicing my, my own voice. <laughs> um, I, I've started seeing like rambling and... Uh, just general like jitteredness or jitteriness um, in conversation as a sign of distractedness, as a sign of distraction. Um, think with me very quickly, Cedric. Uh, imagine a man who has, let's yeah. say, absolute focus on his beliefs and on his life goals. And in this like really rational sense, he approaches each conversation with a, with an objective in mind. So say for him, this episode is to spread the word for for his ideas uh for what he believes i just have i just have to say at this stage this is another beautiful example of you giving a third person abstract context <laughs> oh imagine a I... person imagine a man let's think of this someone you know approaching a conversation this logical matter it's like all right z i'm following oh, I, you. We've i got, we've got i actually i actually mean this like as as the core point of the of uh of this topic um Right. Uh, but I <laughs> I mean perhaps rather how than does, imagining some how do we do person, this we could just yeah. we could just imagine you oh yeah we could yeah we Good could point. just change the context and say me I let me try this. again so no thank you yeah so imagine I uh, <laughs> imagine <laughs> I only spoke points <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is if if I had sufficient focus or more focus than I had um I wouldn't feel such a need to, um, you know, put on, put on armor for all of my points in, in the form of this context. I could just simply say the points and encourage, courage challenge. 
Um, and there might be something that makes me avoid this and hence go on this ramble that people can't reply to. I, I think there is beauty to your context because it allows the listener who cannot see us and who cannot see our thoughts to somehow picture something, right? It makes our whole discussion a lot more visual, I think, is the context you give. You know, imagine a man. Imagine you're trying to start a business. You know, it's, 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 it can be quite fun, but at the same time, I agree with you, you can get a bit lost. And, and this was one of the takeaways for me, this kind of this sensation of getting lost, which is that... Mm-hmm. You know, while we have said we're going to discuss three things, we have these themes and, you know, now we've started to introduce them at the start of the episode as well. There, you know, I had the sensation while listening back of thinking, is there actually direction to this episode? Do we have some sort of sort of a goal? Are we going somewhere? Mm. Is there something for the listener to hold on to, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, our last episode was roughly an hour. Our first test recording was also over an hour. Mm. But, you know, what is what makes a listener stay for more than 15 minutes, mm. you know? At the start, you know, now it's been roughly, let's just guess, 10 minutes. And, you know, we've been going on about some of our thoughts from the last episode. So what's, you know, what's there for the listener to say, I'm going to listen to this for longer, I'm going to mm. stick around past the 15-minute mark, you know? Maybe we start with why. So why we've chosen these topics. Um, let uh, I'll just hazard a guess. Deep reading and deep learning for... Those of you who want to make 2021, um, well, <laughs> for the for anyone ever tired of reading, <laughs> no, um, I, I think deep reading and deep listening, this is particularly interesting to me um, because it, it almost promises uh, an elevated form of learning or, or consumption of content. Um, we are all familiar with vapid and meaningless reading and maybe even listening, like passive listening. Um, and I've always wondered how we can do so, uh, you know, read and listen in a more focused way. Um, I know a little bit about the topic, so deep reading and deep listening certainly resonates with me. And for those out there who haven't um, come across the ideas of deep thinking or deep work, um, it's kind of when you are, when you lose a sense of time, when you're in flow, when you are so focused that... Um, it really p- puts you at peak performance. Um, getting there, I think, is the challenge, and maybe this is what this uh, this topic, this section of our podcast today, um, hopes to bring. Um, what are your thoughts on the uh, the the Assange and the extradition stuff, though, Cedric? Um, well, I, why would a listener stick around for that? Yeah, I mean, what I what I what I find interesting is uh, is just to to kind of give, and I and I and I hate to pull a Z at this stage, but you know to give a little bit of context. Oh please, so to give a little bit. Of, <laughs> you flatter yeah, me. Yeah, to give a little bit of context <laughs> is how do we come up with these things in the first place? And what I find is is quite interesting because you and I always we kind of message and sit down and think about you know what what do we actually want to speak about? But what I found, and I'm curious whether you agree with this, is that there is always some sort of an overarching theme. I can't really Mm. say what this theme is but these things all tend to overlap and i'll give you an example Mm. here we've started by you know in the past 10 minutes speaking about some of the things that we've we've you know lessons from our last recording and right Mm. now we're kind of shifting into this topic of deep reading and deep listening and in many ways they overlap Mm. right because Mm. for example you know we might have been lost and rambling and didn't have a clear sense of direction because we were passively listening to each other or perhaps the content that we wanted to discuss, we didn't actually really engage with. So for example, one of the ideas 
related to deep reading. I mean, deep reading itself is simply the contact, uh, the, the concept of reading text more slowly and truly engaging with the content. But the, the, the actual basis of deep reading in the first place is actually to do the reading, right? <laughs> actually read stuff. I mean, so many people we speak to today, they've read a summary. They've read an overview, you know, got great platforms for this, things like Blinkist, for example. You get great overviews, but people actually haven't read the content. And you can tell in conversation. But anyway, I don't want to get too caught up on that. And then moving on, if we actually look at the, the Julian Assange context and also the Donald Trump topic, that is also related to speech. It's also related to how we engage with certain debates in the public eye. Julian Assange leaked documents about the U.S. government that the government didn't like. And then there was a huge debate about espionage. You know, he hid in an embassy, so on and so forth. But it's also related to how we communicate. He started a debate that someone else didn't want to have in the public. Same with Donald Trump. He was blocked from Twitter for inciting, you know, an insurrection. Whether he sees it that way, he's probably going to deny. Twitter sees it differently. That's also, you know, politicized and, and uh, you know, different part like the two parties in the U.S. see it differently and then individuals, so on and so forth. But again, it's about speech. It's how we interact. It's how we debate. It's about perspective. So in many ways, there these things all kind of tie into each other. It's a very interesting uh, observation, for sure. Um, so for, for the listeners, um, if you're keen to hear some different angles on the ideas of uh, the dissemination of information on communicating in the public and what we're doing here as well, which is also just working in public and having this chat for everyone to see, mm. um, then stick around. Yeah. Yeah, and on that note, let's move into our first segment, or rather, our first discussion. Actually, wait, hold on. No, 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 wrong. Our first segment was lessons from our last episode. But tying into that, let's let's just dive into deep reading and deep listening. You've already given okay. a little bit of context, so have I. I want to start with I want to start with a bit of a quote here, and and, and I'm I'm not mm. sure you've heard this quote. To be honest, I haven't. I, I heard it in um, in a podcast. That, no, wait, I, I have heard it now, but it's it's only been a few weeks since a podcast. I really enjoyed listening to it. It had its last proper episode in December. And, um, mm. you know, the host quoted this, and I Googled it. It's, it's a quote from the 60s, I believe, from, uh, from a prominent journalist. And the idea is the medium is the message. And I'm curious, what, what do those words, you know, what, what, what does that make you think about? Mm. It makes me a little confused, I must say. Mm, Um, So what I interpret is the medium is the message. So whether the medium be, let's say, radio, television, um, magazine uh, journalism, broadsheet journalism, articles and so on. um, I think it carries certainly some of the message. Um, Like the the formats are very different when you're like listening or when you're reading. Um, like in which situations are you sitting down to read a magazine versus the situations that you are sitting down to read the Financial Times, say. Um, so the audience is different. The context of reading is different. But it's only part, partly the message, in my opinion. Um, but I, I think I agree with the quote. Um, the medium is significant enough in terms of the, the, the message um, for, for this quote to actually make sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I had the exact same sensation. When I first heard it and read it, I was confused. Um, and then upon thinking about it further, I, I, I thought exactly the same thing as you. If you look at 
You know, if you compare a newspaper to a magazine to a website, then to a blog mm. to social media, mm. and then perhaps to a podcast, all of these things mm. might be discussing the same thing. But as a result of the medium that is being discussed in, the message does vary、mm. quite significantly. And the reason I think、mm. this is becoming significant, and that is why I chose it as kind of an introductory quote to this concept of deep reading and deep listening. Is that our mediums of communication are changing significantly and they're changing rapidly and realistically? And I'm curious whether you agree with this. They are changing、mm. away from mediums that encourage deep reading and deep listening, towards you know kind of mediums that encourage efficiency and summaries and you know quick reading, speed reading, you know skimming texts. Not really. Just listening to find a, a point to jump on to, or to agree or to disagree with, and to give some examples here. You know, it really is the medium such as podcasting. Although that may encourage deep, deep listening for that matter. I mean, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> discourage our listeners from using this beautiful medium. But、uh, moving on to things such as social media. If you look at Twitter, for example, very short messages. They come in quickly. You know, there is no possibility for you to deeply engage in ideas. Whereas You know more traditional, older mediums. Let's take the oldest one there in terms of printed media is the book. If you engage with a book, that takes time. You're able to deeply dive into the ideas of the author, and if you do take your time with it, you almost you adopt the mindset, right?、Um, and so the mediums today are changing, and they do not encourage deep reading. They do not encourage deep listening, and as a result. I would argue that they encourage a lot of this the polarization disagreement we see today. Would you agree with that?、Mm. What, what 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 do you think about all this?、Mm. No, very very nice introduction.、Uh, there's a lot of meat here to tackle.、Um, so, on the idea that we are the mediums are changing,、um, I would maybe rephrase this as、uh, adoption of mediums have、uh, have been changing for sure. Um, I think actually it is easier than ever for someone to take a deep dive into a book.、Um, so technology has certainly facilitated,、um, let's say, deeper reading. Should that be something that you decide to do? On the other hand, there are now options that couldn't have possibly existed in the past. So the likes of Twitter, Facebook, Blinkist, so these book summary apps, they couldn't have existed before. Um, due to technological、uh, constraints, but since they do now,、um, and they have demonstrated that, like certain at least certain segments of consumers are very happy to use them,、uh, they've become very prominent and popular, have very large marketing budgets, and no doubt have become successes, and have probably,、um, you know, they have huge user bases which simply use Twitter instead of reading a book.、Um, this shorter medium, maybe、yeah, the ease of access. For sure, maybe、um, draws us towards it, but I think society as a whole, I think, encourages this kind of maybe more broad,、um, you know, harvesting of information, trying to hear a little bit from all sources and piece something together so as to act.、Um, I feel we're in a very different world to the ones of、uh, the past, where you know scholars are supposed to read long books, they're supposed to have all volumes of an encyclopedia in their libraries and their home studies and. And things like this. So our associations are, I think, with books,、um, and how like longer form text or you know even deep reading is somehow supposed to be, I don't know, like better. 
Um, I think I, I'm a bit undecided on this. But do you, Could you help me? Uh, yeah, but mm. do you think it's actually better? Because, I mean, think about it. If we look at a lot of the modern mediums today, they really, I mean, everything competes for your attention today. You know, you're, if, we, if we look at the way our phones work, you know, you're getting push notifications. Every form of app wants to get your attention. Even if you're nowadays having... Um, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in a group, you'll find at least one person who at one point or another will be glued to their smartphone suddenly. And so you even find yourself in the real world now suddenly competing for attention in a way that perhaps in the past wasn't the case. And, and the point I'm trying to make here at the stage is that because there is this competition for attention, that distracts from, you know, detailed, deep communication. Actually, engaging with ideas in many ways it distracts from ideas in the first place you know because in order to compete for attention you have to be you know you have to grab someone's attention and the best way to grab someone's attention typically is with something simple something short and snappy that they can jump onto and i feel like if we if we look at a lot of the debates we have in public discourse today you will find that you know you will find that there isn't a lot of substance. Most people have not done the reading. They have not engaged with the facts. They've, you know, they have some summaries, they have some statistics, they have someone else's opinion. And usually also they have a great talent to bullshit, but they haven't actually engaged with ideas anymore because essentially, just like everybody else, they're just competing for attention. But I, I don't think this is necessarily a, like, do you think of this as exclusively a problem of our modern times? Mm, well, that's hard to say because we're both relatively young. I don't know what it was like 50 years ago. It's hard to say. I think we've always been competing for each other's attention. But I think the way the mediums have changed have allowed us to get better and better and better at competing for attention. Oh, well, I think that people are better informed than they have ever been. Um, maybe a bit of a, a curveball. But I think people have... Um, been better uh, are better informed than they've ever been it's just that there are a lot more people who are informed at all now and it's easy uh, than to hear like a, a loud voice of a, of a of a new mob um coming up but yeah thanks to the internet those who are scholarly and those who do seek details are able to seek them with greater efficiency than they were, were able to before um it's just now uh yeah like more people get a voice now so in the past if we look at states which presumed that they had large consensus in in these countries it's simply what the historical artifacts show us which very well could have been uh, sort of censored and huge amount of survivorship bias we only see what those states chose to show us but now the artifacts that we have on twitter and social media i think it's much more representative of uh, of society as a whole so instead of i i think i tend to see it instead of like this technology reshaping society and people's beliefs and and stuff which for sure it has um i simply see it as a as a much clearer window through which we can observe um you know civilization if we had if you uh, you know let's say you gave twitter to the ancient egyptians <laughs> another um, another uh, how fascinating another beautiful piece yeah, how fascinating <laughs> 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 oh no but uh, but th- this is simply to to dress up the point a little yes. bit um, but this is how i see the the present times maybe more so not that technology has fundamentally changed us um maybe more so just simply we, we get to see ourselves a bit clearer now that the conflicts are a lot more uh, a lot more sort of at the fore um but to 
drive the point a little bit further and to, to um, agree with you, Cedric, um, there are certainly abusers of these technologies. Um, and I think the, the way, the, the, the scale of Twitter and Facebook, the ease with which you can use uh, financial capital to win social capital, uh, so to win people's minds, and how easy this is to be automated and, and done at scale, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty scary. I, we, I don't think anyone has ever been able to accomplish this, this kind of um, mass media control. Yeah, I mean... So this surely, uh, and this does affect us. This is more than just a window now. This is now a director or a conductor. Yeah, I mean, I do want to clarify that I am not, mm. you know, saying that these new mediums that we have are necessarily a problem. I do, to an extent, agree with you that they are just shining light where light has not been before because more people are getting a voice. But at the same time, and, and this is why I think the quote is so powerful, the medium is the message, the message does change depending on the medium, but also the culture changes. And I, and I want to give you an example here. Um, I'm a firm believer that how you act in a conversation is how others will act back at you. If you ask people questions, they tend to ask questions back. If you listen to them, they tend to listen. If you tend to grandstand, they're also likely to grandstand. But these things vary, right? If you, and, and, and this is quite fascinating to observe, even with people who know each other. If you take two people and you put them in the room, even if they firmly disagree with each other, they tend to have a relatively civil conversation. But if you put them both in two separate places, you give them both, say, a Twitter account, so they have limited words they can use at a time, or limited characters, rather, the culture and engagement of their conversation is very different. And I don't just want to bash Twitter here. This is, this is just an internet yeah. phenomenon. You could put people on a random blog, yeah. right? Yeah. Or a random yeah. forum. But people are much yeah. more vicious online because they don't see the person they're engaging with. They don't have to fear some sort of um, you know, undesirable reaction. They can just go out and say what they want to. And so, again, how you act on the conversation, others act back at you. Yeah. If you look at the dynamic online, it's often much more raw, perhaps even less civil, perhaps more aggressive and yeah. insightful. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, what we're seeing, if, if we take the example of the US last week, it, it is also spilling over into the real world because you're able to yeah. mobilize these crowds, but not even not necessarily in a positive, but also in a, in a negative fashion. Do you see what I'm saying mm. here? A hundred percent, I see what you're saying. And your example with Twitter and how the medium almost changes the message because you have to condense what you want to say into you know, 160 characters or whatever it is. Um, it's a very profound point. Um, nevertheless, um, with, uh, so with regards to like, so then deep reading and deep listening, um, Twitter for sure doesn't encourage, <laughs> let's say, deep reading. Um, it, it, I think it encourages broad reading, broad and probably then by definition shorter. Um, and the effects that it has on us psychologically, like if we start depending on things like Twitter, um, deep reading as a as an uh, as a task or as an activity becomes increasingly difficult. So then, do you believe? Um, would you posit, Cedric, that deep reading uh, is like a virtue that we ought to read deeper? Um, and then the trade off being that we can't then read quite as broadly, given that we let's say dedicate a fixed amount of time to reading per week. I think it really depends on the person, the context. I mean, overall, for me, just looking at how how I've kind of changed the way I consume um, text in the past two months, 
Um, mm. I personally feel like I am benefiting from doing more deep reading. You know, granted, due to the COVID mm. situation, we all have a lot more time at home, mm. and I have, mm. you know, I've I've had a long reading list, and I've been buying a lot of books, and I've been doing a lot of reading, and increasingly, I've tried to, you know, really slow down and engage with these books more, rather than pace through them and read them, and you know, like one two days, just smash it out, and I'll take my time. And what I find is that. The more time you're kind of in this book, it's it's a little bit like watching a movie as well. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like for mm. you, but with some movies and in this case also with some books, when you really engage with them, you almost feel like you're in that world. You're in that mindset. You see the characters. Yeah. Or in the case mm. of these books, and in my you know my instance, I read a lot of nonfiction and a lot of you know texts mm. about politics, policy, or or social problems. You know, recently I started reading a mm. book that that you recommended to me, and by the way, it's great, which is super forecasting. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I never forgot about it. You recommended it, and, and I got it, and I love it. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that when you really slow down and engage with the text, I really feel like I'm starting to get into the mindset of the author, not just the facts and the arguments mm. they're presenting, but this mindset. And I'm finding that a very rewarding experience. And so to answer your question, I feel like the benefits I'm getting from spending more time with with these books and with these ideas mm. at a cost of obviously engaging with a broad sense of content. Yeah. I do feel like the benefits outweigh that, at least for me personally, mm. because mm. I am getting so much out of it mentally in terms of my own opinions, my own knowledge of engaging with these authors and actually getting into how they're thinking rather than just having this broad overview of lots of things that are going on and having nice summaries and facts here and there like that's great but it hasn't mm. actually changed the way i think about things whereas mm. with these books and with this deep reading and actually taking my time it really does wow. change the way i think about things this this wow it's it's the exploit uh, explore exploit um kind of dilemma i think you see with things like twitter and the shorter form you have things that are capitalizing on interest, right? So it's on a daily basis or even on an hourly basis, it gives you like a new point of interest. Yeah. It gives you some kind of new stimulus. Yeah. However, like so long as you have at least one interest or, or at least something that you're interested in enough to, let's say, go read a book about it, then just read that book until interest wanes and then visit somewhere like Twitter to get new inspiration for interest. Mm, I like um, this. Yeah, uh, I, I think this must be the way like there are so many things I save I bookmark I retweet I am so disappointed that I, I never visit revisit any of them <laughs> but like in that moment I'm telling you I'm feeling some kind of like inspiration yes. that my future self is probably going to need but like whatever like I don't need it right now <laughs> and then you just end up never exploiting uh, ne never like getting into the meat of it and you know, range when I saw Bill Gates recommended this and how Bill Gates spoke so highly of range and the and its author. Um, uh, the, the first thought that came to mind, which I tweeted about actually, was <laughs> and not to give a, a you know an imaginary context, but I I said, you know, imagine being taught by the teachers that Bill Gates uh, learns from. Yes. Uh, and then being one to one with them, and especially for people in the past who have now um, deceased. Um, such as Richard Feynman, great physicist, or even the works of Hayek, which I enjoyed reading, uh, even uh, you know, doing our political economy modules. These people have long passed. We cannot have an audience with them 
in in the real world, but we can still learn their ideas and hear them through their writings. And I think this is um, there's something really uh, like magnificent about this kind of yes. almost surreal. Yes, about precisely. It. So intimate. And in many ways, it's the it's the exact same thing as this idea of getting into the mindset of these people. Um, and I and I really like that. I remember you bringing this up in our in our last episode. Um, where we spoke about range you said this this concept of imagine learning from the people that are teaching or rather that the un- other people that we may aspire to such as bill gates are learning from um mm. and that's exactly the the experience that i have but to, to also touch on this idea of bookmarking and inspiration mm. i do think that's fantastic mm. and and i'm the same you know if i look at all of the books i have I was inspired <laughs> by social media platforms, yeah. but also by some of the news outlets I read to actually get these books in the first place. I read summaries, I read overviews, I thought it was fantastic, and that inspired me to read it. So I agree with you, it's, it's a combination mm. of these mediums that can also create a more profound message. I also have this horrible habit uh, of bookmarking mm. hundreds of things and not going back on them. It's a great habit to bookmark yeah. them. What, what yeah. is unfortunate is that I don't go back on all these things. Perhaps if I did, I wouldn't have time to do anything else either because it's just so mm. much content, right? Um, mm. But I agree with mm. you. I think combining these things can be fantastic. You can get great overview, great context, great ideas, and your your amount of context, Z. You can get great context. <laughs> yeah, you can get great context uh, from our, our, some of our newer mediums. Um, but then what I found is just if you actually do the reading and you allow mm. ideas to grow... You know, and you engage mm. Uh, uh, mm. with with the things around you, be that books, be that people. So actually do do deep reading, deep listening. Mm. You get so much more out of it. Mm. And I think it's fantastic. I think the, the, the intent is, is so critical. The intent when going like mindlessly going to Twitter or to Instagram, like we can all admit to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, the intent is, uh, we say, yeah, to get new ideas, to find new readings. To a point, like, there is utility, but I think uh, it's, like, it's just automatic. It's pleasure. It's killing time, maybe. And that's the intent. You're not there. Like, you haven't blocked out psychologically, like, the time. You know, the, you know you're not there to, like, properly learn deeply about a subject. Like, this isn't the approach you haven't given the, you know, given enough time for it. Yeah. But for a book, you know, before even considering open, opening the book, you might have to give yourself at least 30 minutes or an hour dedicating to one task, yes. which is the reading. Um, and I think this puts your brain in a very different mode. Yeah. A very different mode. Um, it, and I find, Cedric, um, I, must, I must ask you this. Um, there's a very special sensation that I get that only applies to a few small things in life. Um, it, it's... Never ever, never before have I ever <laughs> um, felt bad or, or regretted reading, like spending an hour to read or like going outdoors to do some exercise or going to meet up with a friend, despite all of the anxiety that comes with it. Maybe it's cold outside. Maybe the book will be boring and I've got better things to do. And, you know, maybe I, you know, I feel anxious with this, this person I haven't seen in a long time. But every single time, I've never regretted it yet every single time. I feel friction to get started on these activities. So with going out to exercise, it's obvious. I think everyone's felt it. With reading a book, picking up a book instead of picking up your phone. like And there are many times I've used the phone for like 10 or half an hour and I've definitely regretted it. And there are many times when I spent all day indoors and whole weeks without exercising and really regretted it. 
and not kept in touch with old friends and really regretted it. So what's going on in this cognitive dissonance? And have you ever felt the same? How do you, um, how do you tackle this? Yeah, I, I, I felt, I've definitely felt the same. What's interesting is that actually, to be perfectly honest, in this past week, I have not read mm. any of my books. Uh, mm. And I've been wanting to, and I've been regretting not doing it because all of the weeks before that, so for a period of about maybe five weeks, up until this past week, I have been consistently going through my books and it's been great. Oh, yeah. And I've had that exact sensation that you're saying of, I haven't regretted it once. But I now also find myself being distracted with all these other things, you know, playing around on your phone, you know, mm. doing stuff on the computer, uh, or even just mm. engaging with, with, with other outlets, but more superficially. Mm. And I always mm. regret it mm. in hindsight. And with exercise, obviously, it's a classic. I mean, I find myself... <laughs> Thankfully, uh, quite regularly exercising these past two months, I've I've been you know almost oh, on, almost on a daily basis. But again, it is you know you always have to kick yourself and say do it, uh, and it's the same mm. with with reading. And and again, it ties to this idea of everything competes for our attention. It distracts from ideas. It you know it distracts from details and things you are motivated to do. And at the end of the day, you know we're we're all human, um, and <laughs> we're motivated by by simple at, at times simple pleasures and you know opening your phone and just going on a mindless scroll seems mm. satisfying at the time and you got nothing out of it um whereas <laughs> motivating yourself to read a book is like a drag but then when you actually did it mm. oh you feel great same with the workout um so i get you 100 percent, mm. and i feel the same way mm. Uh, I would I would use this opportunity just to to tie up this topic. I think we've engaged with this quite mm. nicely, and and I would like to move on now to our second segment, um, and also add at this stage that you came up with this. You found these articles. Uh, you suggested why don't we speak about Assange and what was happening because we recently had the UK uh, judge blocking extradition of the guy to the US, mm. and it's a super interesting topic. And we gave it this headline of freedom of speech. An extradition and it also ties in with with the donald trump mm. topic that we will talk about his being blocked from twitter mm. later but um if you if you're happy to do it z why don't you just give us a bit of an overview and also why you picked it why you thought this was interesting and and what we can kind of expect mm. from this discussion mm. right so um i'll start with the why um I felt like I could learn a lot from you on this topic cedric this is the <laughs> the guilty reason um Julian Assange, uh, as, a, as a figure, has been an inspiration to me for, for a very long time. Uh, and with Edward Snowden as well, I, I kind of I look up to these people quite a lot. I think they've done a great public service. They've done a great public good. Um, but maybe understandably, by the rule of the law, they are seen as criminals and, uh, and pretty big criminals at that. Um, I'd always realised, like, Julian Assange, I think he was in the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK, like living there for like 10 years. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I said seven. Yeah, seven years. Seven years, yeah. And like <laughs> he didn't leave once. And every couple of years or so, his name would pop up in the newspaper and like maybe in a few tabloids being like, oh, this is like what Julian Assange eats on Uber Eats or... <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And I just felt it bizarre that, um, you know, WikiLeaks, which is what he created, um, is actually so divisive amongst people. Uh, I can really, like from a governance perspective, as much as I dislike, um, you know, big government and states and all of this, um, uh, I can see though, I can understand, like from a governance perspective, why this stuff is very destabilizing. 
Um, and there could be many factors at play, such as national security, um, like societal stability, that could be heavily compromised by the likes of WikiLeaks and uh, and uh, and uh, Edward Snowden exposing um, uh, what he did in America. Um, and these things are beyond the scope of a of an ordinary citizen like myself, right? Like we we can't imagine like all of the complex like stuff that's going on in the background systematically that keeps us afloat. Um, so, but then like uh, when I hear like, have you ever been on WikiLeaks, for example, and like just gone through a few of the uh, the documents on that? Um, you know what? To be perfectly honest with you, I haven't. Um, but <laughs> but it's not it's not necessarily down to to personal lack of interest but i think Mm. um perhaps even tied to this implicit fear that i shouldn't do it first of all in the Ah. past first of all in the past Mm. i couldn't so um uh, in 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 dubai for example at least if i remember correctly wikileaks is not actually accessible the website is blocked Mm. uh in the uk i'm I'm not sure and in germany i'm I'm sure these websites are accessible but i think in Mm. one way or another you do draw attention to yourself of just visiting it because as you said it is a bit of a bit of a you know kind Mm. of a a saw or rather an irritation to governments but I think mm. this ties into to the core idea that you're trying to, or that we were trying to express here, which is this idea that, or rather, I would like to summarize it with one word, which is trust. I think all of mm. us citizens, especially in democratic societies, or rather, almost exclusively, arguably, in democratic societies, trust that we have civic freedoms. You know, we have freedom of speech, mm. we have freedom of press, mm. we have freedom of assembly. And if you do something mm. wrong, you're going to get a fair trial. There's no due process, right? Mm. But mm. people like Assange or, or Snowden, especially in the context of the U.S., prove that mm. if you irritate the bear, the government, the state, yeah. you know, if you if you come to... There's this analogy, I don't know if you've heard of it, this idea of a golden cage. Have you ever heard of this golden cage analogy? No, never. It's a beautiful analogy. It's this idea that, that you live in a golden cage, right? Inside is paradise. But if you... If you start <laughs> rattling on the bars of this cage, you will be uh, punished. Yeah. And because you know, you're trying to go for the gold and then you realize actually it's a cage and you can't get out. Mm. And perhaps you don't have the freedoms you implicitly thought. And in many ways, right. I, I would you agree that that is actually the core message here? We have this implicit trust, but it exists because we're actually not messing with, you know, the state. We aren't provoking. Mm. We aren't you know mm. i i read a quote recently like a hundred percent i agree with this cedric um i won't be able to quote it very well but it's something along the lines of the the strength of a system um or a civilization is based on how uh, like how well it can withstand tests such as these um you're right like i i think we have these kind of beliefs i and i used to be very much like this oh look we have freedom of speech we can do this and we can do that but frankly we just hadn't really been tested Whereas it's very easy to look over to sort of China, to um, the ex-Soviet Union or even Russia today and be and think, ah, there's so much censorship. They censor journalists. They censor their people. Ah, it's like, you know, it's it's hell over there. Um, but then when we're tested here, when there are these big leaks um, and you see our governments respond, they do it in a really, I guess, like politically correct way. They frame things so well. They spin things so well. Uh, and I don't think enough people are as like quite as... Um, I think people should be a bit more pissed off at how, uh, you know, at the, the, the sort of fallout of WikiLeaks 
uh, and Edward Snowden. Uh, I really highly recommend, by the way, Cedric, and for the listeners out there to go to YouTube and search uh, yeah, Edward Snowden interviews. Um, I believe he did one with Joe Rogan, but he also did several others with, um, I know, just like lecture series around the world. Like the guy is so is very, very, very insightful. He is, yes, um, he is. Very, very insightful, yeah. yeah. I've actually never sort of seen anything for Julian Assange, really. Um, but I imagine you have to have, you know, some you know, some next-level kind of belief in what you're doing to, to sort of risk it all. Um, you know, when, when Assange and, uh, and Edward Snowden, like, executed their sort of exposés, I'm sure they knew the consequences. Um, and I'm not sure I would have had the courage, but it's admiring to see. Uh, I, I admire them a lot for the courage that they had to, to do this. Um, but my point here, and what I wanted to ask you, Cedric, is um, like I, I feel like uh, Julian Assange has done us a great, great favor with WikiLeaks. Um, but but I don't think people see it this way. Like, could you let me know like what your perceptions on uh, on WikiLeaks is? Uh, Let's see. And maybe I that think of- this is down to precisely what you said, which is this idea that. You know, in democratic societies, our states frame things, they spin things, because ultimately, as a state, as a democratic state, you need to maintain the support of your citizens. And the best way to do that is to, almost like every private company does it, is to sell yourself, right? And so in many ways, you're also selling this idea that people who, you know, quote unquote, do wrong, actually did wrong, as in they will sell this, Mm. they will push this. So, you know, mm. Assange or Snowden will be labeled as, as traitors or as people, you know, be, be charged with espionage, you know, the, these really bizarre concepts. Mm. But the, mm. the outlets that the state has to communicate this will be used. These channels of communication will be used. I don't want to go as far as to say to brainwash the population because that would, that would imply the sense of kind of bad intent. I don't even think mm. there is bad intent per se on the hands of the government, but rather there is this desire or this implicit need to spin things in order to maintain support right do you Mm. see what i'm saying Mm. i do i do i do uh it's just i'm very worried about the gray area um between sort of spin and outright delusion uh sorry or um how would you call it uh like pulling wool over people's eyes like just tricking tricking the public I think it is expected, you know, like, let's say uh, uh, citizens such as ourselves, we must work to put food on the table, contribute to society. We can't spend all of our waking hours informing ourselves about about everything or even like triaging what is important. And hence, there must be some kind of delegation. And most of us delegate this to to the government and maybe to an extent to the press. Um, And hence, like, you know, you, you mentioned with Twitter, like they have some of the smartest people in the world working on literally like how to make humans more addicted to the platform or or how to keep them coming back and logging in and using it for longer and longer like it is their sole express role to do this um as a problem it's quite interesting but like the way that is implemented and whatever the underlying goals twitter has or even governments have like who the hell knows right um but when you have these guys with like really powerful instruments of uh, sort of influencing societal like this behavior or sentiment and they put this to bad use against uh, the best interests of the people but for the best interests of remaining in power um this is where you know this is why i'm i'm especially afraid of this i'm afraid because i feel like fellow 
my fellow peers maybe quite uh, like aren't quite as as scared um and I, and I don't think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but no, feel free I, to call I, me I one. Do. No, but I, under, I understand your underlying logic. I wouldn't go as far as to call you a conspiracy theorist because you're not peddling any sort of conspiracy <laughs> theories at this point. Um, but, I, but I do understand this. It, and ultimately, mm. it just it always comes down to, to knowledge and understanding, right? Uh, typically, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, but we tend to fear things we don't understand right surely you agree with that yeah. correct i and think so, intrinsically yeah. yeah and so mm. the the issue um with the assange case or also the snowden case is that you know you are presented with on the one hand first of all your information is limited because as you said you have lots of other things to take care of it's not your highest priority mm. it is not your job to actively engage with what happened in this case right mm. So you you kind of end up with these two sides. You have you have their side of things, so Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and or or mm. Edward Snowden's case, his lectures and his interviews and everything he says, and then you have this very strong overarching narrative of what the government and the state says. And so trying mm. to navigate through what the actual intrinsic truth is, because it's probably a mixture of both, right? To an extent, mm. Mm. as you said, there are, are legitimate legal arguments as to why what they did is wrong. At the same time, there are legitimate moral and ethical mm. arguments as to say why what they did is right. Mm. And so the, the mm. truth and the correct approach to this is probably somewhere in the middle. It always is. It's always some sort of a compromise. Mm. It's always a gray area. You know, we do not live in a black and white world. But ultimately, this makes it very difficult to understand and to really grasp, okay, how should mm. we deal with this? What really is the right approach? Mm. What is the truth? And because we don't know, or we don't know for sure, we only may think we mm. know to an extent, that creates fear, at least implicitly. Yeah, yeah. I think these are, these end up being like moral judgments, mostly. Um, you know, say, you know, we would be pretty pissed off if someone like exposed our like address, like our full identities online, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like this is uh it's not chill and and you know like assange and edward snowden essentially did this on mass um and you do have like the anarchists uh who who i don't necessarily side with who are like ah oh, yeah you know like these politicians are born like animals and they should be killed and uh, i certainly don't believe in this i feel like you know they have their rights to privacy as much as we do yeah um and just because they're a government official doesn't mean they need to be you know abused and lynched um, but I think it comes down to some kind of moral judgment as to, uh, you know, and, and if enough of society, as you say, like believe it's fine and there's no big deal here, then it is what it is. But uh, we should always, if we if we migrate to this, then like the idea of freedom of speech, maybe uh, like Assange was just expressing his <laughs> and Edward Snowden simply his as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so long as you and I have a right to go and like upload an image to Facebook <laughs> Um, then in theory, I mean, what they're essentially doing is uploading a whole bunch of their personal files, so-called well, files in their possession, like to a Dropbox and making it public or putting it all on Notion and making it public. Um, but then, like... <laughs> uh, I mean, they have the right. And, like, if it goes viral, you know, they, they did some great marketing, like viral marketing, I guess. Yeah. Um, great content, but... Um, no, but obviously, they, they, I think one thing to come back to, and this is key, and obviously this depends on perspective, the government would... The government, in this case, the U.S. government would disagree. Um, but you could argue, and, and many do, that Assange and Snowden... Um, didn't just leak documents in their possession that happened to be classified, but what they intended to do was to release information that pointed to the fact that a government 
a democratic government mm. was committing a crime or doing something that mm. was ethically uh, not justifiable, right? And so, mm. you know, this, and then this is what makes this so challenging because it's a matter of, of perspective and also intent, you know, what was the intent behind the government to do the things that it did that were arguably unethical and illegal? Likewise, mm. um, what was the intent of the individuals who released it? And I know this is now getting increasingly abstract, mm. but it's, it's just to say mm. that um, the difficulty in navigating this is what makes it difficult. And I think it's what, what leads to fear because it's ultimately fear of, of dictatorship, perhaps of authoritarianism. You're scared that governments are taking too much control. They're doing things that are immoral, that are unethical, that mm. are illegal. And mm. um, what those two individuals have done, Assange and Snowden, is that they've given us proof that that is the case. And I think many people mm. choose to, to see almost in a, in a naive sense, that our governments only do good. Uh, and the reality is somewhere in between. They do good, but they also do bad things. It's in human nature, right? Mm. Um, but I think it's seeing that reality um, or seeing facts that support this, that kind of encourage this fear of losing control. Mm. And in many ways, just mm. to use this as a segue to get to our last topic today, um, mm. Donald Trump being blocked from Twitter is also, I mean, while I personally agree with the move, Right. Interestingly, there was huge critique from from uh, the German Chancellor Merkel and also from French mm. President Macron in saying, how can ah. a private corporation block, right. you know, such an important public figure? What mm. they said might have been wrong, but ultimately it's censoring, free, uh, you know, censoring and, and limiting freedom mm. of speech. Mm. And in one way or another, what is being done to Assange and Snowden, you know, forcing them into exile, putting them through complex trials, accusing them of heinous crimes mm. is also censoring and limiting freedom of speech uh, and obviously mm. it's, it's perspective dependent so now moving on to this last topic i am curious do you think that it is okay that twitter and facebook and other social media platforms are blocking donald trump and is it okay that amazon is taking down a rival network parlor that is you know kind <laughs> of a world for these conservatives to peddle their conspiracy theories they'll disagree mm. they don't think it's conspiracy theories for them it's reality but, you know, is it okay for corporations to have this power and to limit the, the, the channels of communication to people such as Donald Trump? Well, this is a... It's a fat topic. Um, yes. I'm not sure I've processed, uh, like, my, my view on this. Um, look, I'll, I'll give you the two sides. Uh, like, on the one hand, I think Twitter can do what they like. Um, and, and no one should come in and regulate them. If people are indeed so pissed, for example, that Twitter blocked Donald Trump, it's well within your means to stop using Twitter as a, as a sign of um, you know, rebellion against this company. Um, on the other hand, like, I think all forms of censorship, like censorship as a keeping people in the dark, um, like feels morally wrong to me. Yeah. Um, but like th this event, like I feel is very significant since it's usually the state censoring people or even censoring companies. But what we have now is essentially Twitter, like a private company censoring the state, which I find to be just quite fascinating in it and is, of itself. Yeah, it's such a change. It's a change <laughs> of perspective, right? Because ultimately, uh, in the Assange and Snowden case, it's the state censoring a mm. private individual. And now we have an example mm. of private individuals in the form of a private mm. corporation censoring, you know, mm arguably the most powerful man in america mm -mm. Ah, for sure for sure uh, like his influence carries uh, you know uh, so so much um but actually um i think i'm getting a bit of clarity on this i i actually think it's okay 
um, what Twitter have done. Um, and it's because I feel like I've been poisoned by this word censor. I think a lot of us have, like by, by myself especially. Like we call it censorship, but if I go on Twitter and uh, post pornographic images of children, for example, they're going to block me. Um, and it's not necessarily because Twitter is, uh, you know, big, big brother and, you know, is passing some kind of moral judgment on me. But it could be as simple as if I indeed do this, the user experience of those who follow me on Twitter or wider um, is drastically decreased. Well, not just uh, that. Hence, not just that. I mean, it's blatantly wrong, immoral and frankly, also illegal. Right. So they're they're just taking an almost obvious step and limiting that sort of activity. It's sure. It's uh, I I don't believe um, like everything uh, because we live in as you say a world of uh, not of black and white and everything's in grey. Um, I think everything should be given its fair share of uh, skepticism and say maybe it's clear, maybe it isn't. Um, there are people who say uh, allow it to stay on there for the sake of freedom of speech and and so on. Yeah, but, but Twitter I mean, clearly <laughs> has I mean, uh, maybe maybe this is the. Uh the 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 example that you chose but i feel like an example such to such extreme it it does make it quite easy to just say well no that's just wrong that just shouldn't be there right but so so there are platforms out there uh, such as 4chan or anything on the tor network in which these kind of practices are like completely fine um but is it fine uh, objectively speaking uh, uh, leave me out of it for now. But uh, say, <laughs> okay, okay. say, say they have an audience um, who wishes to see such things. Say, um, then whatever. Like if they were, like if they wish to do it, wish to do it, whatever. And uh, anyone has a problem against it, they can go do something about it. Um, but the case with Twitter, they have stakeholders much bigger than sort of like themselves or the moral judgments of their CEO. Let's say. Uh, so they have advertising partners, uh, they have shareholders, and hence, let's say Donald Trump, even though like morally what he's doing, let's say Twitter doesn't necessarily disagree with on a, in a commercial sense, if the user experience of so many others, say, like say Donald Trump makes a tweet and with every tweet, like 20,000 people complain to Twitter that this person is like, this account is making them feel as repulsed as the example I gave earlier. Then Twitter have a very good case to remove this person from the platform. Does that make sense? Like in the same way that you would feel like it would be obvious. And I would agree with you, dude, like, uh, you know, the child child pornography uh, on the Internet, uh, like especially on Twitter, like it's repulsive. It shouldn't be there. We would campaign to have this kind of accounts doing this stuff removed. Other people are passing a similar moral judgment on Donald Trump. They feel the guy is so morally repulsive, such a, you know, a FU to democracy, to liberty. Um, to even prosperity, that they feel like this person's presence on Twitter like decreases their quality of life. And hence then Twitter have a, you know, maybe instead of calling it censorship, because you, do you see how then the yes. censorship has to then apply to Trump as, as much as the, the yeah. sort of illicit accounts that yes, I mentioned? Yes, yes. I do, I do see the, the, the difference here uh, in that simply obviously censoring. I think also traditionally we assume censoring from this kind of, um, a government side where they censor things that they perceive to be uh, often politically incorrect, right? So if we mm. if we go back to the days in the U.S., for example, of people protesting against the draft right. of the Vietnam War, they were often censored, mm. right? Even though, mm. morally mm. speaking, perhaps they had a very strong case. 
to protest against the Vietnam War. Likewise, in authoritarian governments, you know, you will find censorship against media outlets and, and people who are dissidents, ultimately. And so I think censoring has this bad touch, whereas objectively speaking, you're right, technically it is censoring to mm. take down uh, Donald Trump or also the example that you gave. But objectively speaking, or for the majority of people, mm. objectively speaking, it is the right thing to take these things down because, you know, ultimately Donald Trump promoted an insurrection uh, to take down, you know, one of the oldest constitutional democracies in the West, um, mm. which is objectively speaking bad, you know. Um, mm. And you're right also to say that in many ways it reduces the user uh, utility or experience that people have. But it even goes beyond that because in the case of Trump, you know, it, it left the realms of Twitter and it entered the real world. You know, the reason all of these social media platforms are taking this action is right. because they're seeing yeah, yeah. it leave their platforms and actually change society for the worse. You know, you had an armed insurrection where people died. But fun, like Twitter must be happy. I mean, <laughs> that they're, they're being like accused of censorship to say now that the the weapons of censorship are now in the hands of private corporations. It's a. It's a new dawn, you know? Yes, it does. It definitely um, changes the game. It changes the game, yeah, like for, for it to be considered so. Um, and we're still in such early days when it comes to like the co companies like Facebook, um, Twitter, even Amazon now with like, you know, they own the servers that half the internet run on <laughs> and they can sort of switch it on and off as they please. Yeah. We're still seeing like the first like use cases, the first um, exhibits of um of a the world that we live in dominated by by big tech it's very interesting who knows what five years down the line holds huh? well i think in that case would you agree that we have that we have actually completed our discussion on those on those things for today the the cow has been milked for sure the cow the cow has been milked <laughs> So yeah, I don't know about you, man, but I really enjoyed this discussion. I thought it was yes, super interesting. Same, it was, same, it was, same. It was such a nice build-up between these lessons that we had, mm. you know, which were fascinating by themselves. It really tied in so well with mm. deep reading and deep listening. I thought, mm. I, you know, I personally, just speaking about this now, I took so much away from this. This idea yeah. of how you and I engage with each other in this podcast, but also on a more wider scale, how we engage with each other on different mediums and how this affects mm. the message and how we speak to mm. each other, right? Mm, mm. And then ultimately, to round it all off with this argument of do governments have too much power or do private corporations have too much power mm. in regulating how we communicate? I, you know, it, it was... It was beautiful, man. Like I don't want to. I don't want to self compliment <laughs> ourselves too much here, but I really, I took, I took away quite a lot from this. Did you as well? Me too. Yeah, I felt like there was a really nice. It just felt very balanced. Um, we didn't linger on, uh, like meaningless points for too long, but we did leave room a little bit for exploration and creativity and uh, sort of spontaneity. Um, I felt like I learned as well, like we didn't just go through the motions and just have like some conversation pulled out of the ether. Um, yes, exactly. it felt like we like, yeah, like came to new conclusions or came to new ideas, but without necessarily sort of shaking hands on it and, um, you know, exploring every possible angle to support or, or argue against a point. So one of balance, if I feel quite light at the moment. All right, everybody, thank you for sticking around and catch you all next week for another episode of Posterity. See you then.